You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm particularly excited to share this episode with you. It's a little bit different. I'm actually sharing an episode of the Good Money podcast, which is a separate podcast that I am involved with producing through my work at Origin Capital. For those of you who follow the podcast or even just heard the last episode, talk about my work with Origin Capital, in particularly working to bring impact investing to benefit the lives of you know the most vulnerable people in the hardest to reach places on earth. Origin Capital is the impact investing division of World Vision Canada. And on that podcast, we take a, a much more international focus, uh, much more sort of bottom of the pyramid type of focus as well. But uh, this is a really interesting conversation that we had on that podcast with Mother Food International and its founder, Jeff Bakowitz. And actually my wife, uh, Melanie, who is a Christian technical specialist with World Vision Canada. And we talk about the unique approach that Mother Food is bringing, the market-based approach to delivering micronutrients to pregnant and lactating moms and babies in the first thousand days of life, which is this exceedingly critical and vulnerable window uh, in their lives and the immense opportunity it has for impact. And the unique ways in which World Vision and Mother Food are actually working together and leveraging the best of what both approaches have to offer in terms of the, you know, INGO charitable approach and the um, market-based approach. And Mother Food really has a unique uh, model there. World Vision has incredible assets in terms of its expertise, its relationships with communities, its understanding of local context and trust in communities that it's built up over decades. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation because it's um, close to my heart and because I just think it's a very, very interesting topic and is a unique conversation to bring to this podcast and the listeners here. So I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay, so on today's podcast, we have Jeff Bakowitz. Um, Jeff is founder of Mother Food International, which is a social enterprise bringing kind of market-based approaches to addressing maternal, newborn, child health, and really improving the lives and uh, making a very big impact on women and, and, and babies at a very vulnerable point in their lives. So Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Also on the podcast, we have Melanie O'Leary, who is my wife and the nutrition technical specialist with World Vision Canada. Mel, welcome to the podcast. So uh, give everybody a little introduction to what you do. Uh, thanks, David. <laughs> um, yeah, so I have been with World Vision for somewhere over 12 years, and I've been bouncing around with regional focus in Latin America, the Middle East our Asia portfolio for a while. And then most recently, I think for the last, I don't know, seven years, a few mat leaves in between there, um, focusing on uh, our programming in Africa. And as a nutritionist, my focus is really looking at how our programs are designed and implemented to improve nutrition outcomes for some of the most vulnerable people globally. And I think 
we'll get a chance to unpack when we talk about nutrition, who are the most vulnerable, but maybe a, a sneak peek on that. Most of my work involves moms, pregnant moms and, uh, and little babies, which is something near and dear to my heart. And we've now more recently get an opportunity to work with adolescent girls as well. So I'm looking forward to, to sharing more about that. Great. Needless to say, Mel makes most of the decisions around what our daughters eat on a day-to-day basis. That's sort of firmly in her territory. So Jeff, can you give everybody just a brief introduction to you know who you are and what your, your background is and, and what you're working on? So my, my background is mainly as an entrepreneur, both a social entrepreneur and in traditional business. But I actually started in the business world as a social entrepreneur when I was a, a student at McGill. Uh, I dropped out of university to start a recycling program initially on campus and then at a bunch of other universities and grew it into a a larger waste management company that I sold uh, uh, almost 25 years ago now. So back then there wasn't, we didn't use terms like social enterprise or impact investing. It was just, you know, a business that had a a social conscience. Um, And I've gone on since then to uh, found, I guess, another 30 or so businesses and in parallel, uh, have been working in the nonprofit world. Uh, I served as the chairman of the board of Street Kids International, as the chairman of the board of Leave Out Violence, um, and on the board of a bunch of other international development organizations like uh, Jane Goodall Institute and others. And more recently, I helped co-found the McGill Social Economy Initiative, um, and Mother Food was kind of born out of that um, focus on social return on investment. Very interesting. So, has, has like so, it's clear that you're a bit of a serial entrepreneur. You've got entrepreneur probably in your DNA. And and do you remember? Is it was it entirely the entire time that it was sort of socially minded, or were you was there sort of a point in time that 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 started to become important to you? You know, am I? I guess it's. Uh, I, I grew up with a, a mother who's a social worker and a psychotherapist uh, who worked with. Uh, families in, I guess, the inner cities here in Montreal, and she used to bring us around to meet meet families who were in different circumstances than we were. I grew up kind of middle class, um, and um, uh, my father is a Holocaust survivor, and he came to Canada as a refugee, so I've always been kind of acutely aware of um, uh, circumstances for other people. That's really interesting. I'm always, I sort of always stop to ask that question because I think it's really interesting what I, I sort of came to this very late in life and I find it interesting to f- figure out where, how and why people start to think about things beyond themselves. This is just a fascinating, um, uh, fascinating issue for me. Um, so yeah, one of the things that it's quite re- refreshing right now to see the students at McGill that I work with, I give a couple of lectures a year and we have a uh, a business competition for social enterprises. And when I was a student, uh, you know, 30 years ago, the thinking was you go out and you make money. And then when you get older, you write big checks. That's right. um, but really, that's really changed. I mean, youth are thinking about this in high school and getting involved in high school and even younger. Uh, and, and they don't think they don't see these two parallel tracks between business and and uh, social need. They, they think the two are woven together and they're interviewing the companies that they're, we're looking to hire them on their social policies. So it's, it's quite refreshing. And I think is is the best hope we have for the future. Yeah, this is a bit of, I'm going to digress a little bit here, but it's a, 
you know, there's this sort of, you know, there's no shortage of, you know, cliches and, and, and angst about millennials and the younger gen generations and demographics and how, you know, it's always, I think that's been that way for, for generations, but older generations complaining about younger generations. And, and I'm sure we all, every generation has its, 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 its faults, but for, one of the things that I love about the the younger generations is exactly that. It's just sort of just like, I know that this is the way it has been done, but I, I don't care much about the fact that it used to be that way. And I was talking to people actually in the legal industry sort of sharing about how a lot of the, you know, the really, the younger um, uh, lawyers are coming into the, the, the business and articling, you know, and, and earlier in their career, the, the model is you, you know, they do all the grunt work and the senior lawyers spend the, the, the weekends off, you know, uh, at the cottage while the younger ones are, you know, earning their stripes and doing, the, you know, working all through the weekends. And the younger ones are, are wanting to be more, you know, involved in, in social things and, and making an impact in their communities outside of work. They want more balance in their lives. And so they're just refusing this model. And so the older generation will say, well, you know, we, we did that. We, you know, that's what I did. And so you should do the same. It's like, well, I, you know, that was your decision, whatever you wanted to do that, but I'm not going to. And just more and more, um, more and more doing that type of thing. And, and, um, and so it's just this, this idea of rejecting, I don't have to accept the status quo, I think is a, is a, is a good mindset, especially when you direct it to positive uh, outcomes. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that institutional mistrust, it has both good and bad parts to it. Yeah. Um, but as, as we're, as they're challenging some of the traditional beliefs, I think they're coming up with better solutions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So introduce us to, to mother food. So, uh, you know, going back about five years when when I first helped co-found the McGill Social Economy Initiative together with uh, my cousin, the late Chancellor Arnold Steinberg, um, we were trying to think about, you know, how we were going to define it. Um, social economy means a lot of things. I had taken that brief Harvard program on governing for nonprofit excellence, and they really focused on outputs and, and social return on investment and, and really looking at mission-driven organizations. Um, and within there, you know, we, we developed different programs and different courses and, and the business case competition, as I discussed. But it caused me to, as we were just discussing, rethink about how I give the institutions that distribute money, some doing great work, um, and, and about uh, how we can really affect change. And it's a cliche to say that you're looking for the best way to make a difference, but I think everybody feels that way. You know, we all give with our hearts to a certain degree, uh, but we're also becoming a little bit more disciplined about um, measuring to see if the organizations are achieving their goals. So, you know, previously people would be very sensitive about administrative costs or making sure that money isn't getting uh, misspent. Um, but I think there's a, a new generation that are really thinking about the best way to use money. Um, and that's small donors who have very little to give all the way up to Gates Foundation who are giving away hundreds of millions of dollars a month are starting to say, uh, let's have a little more discipline around how we look at problems and outputs, not just good intentions and good causes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I started, I said, let's go back to the beginning and uh, work together with some of the, uh, faculty at McGill, uh, looking at these problems in, in a much broader way. And today, the biggest problem in the world remains malnutrition. Uh, about 2 billion people are suffering some for, form of micronutrient deficiency, uh, what's often called hidden hunger, meaning they're, they might not be undernourished, 
but they are suffering from a lack of certain vitamins and minerals that are preventing them from thriving. We know that there's about 150 million children that are stunted, and we'll get into that a little bit later in more detail. And so if you have 150 million children under the age of five that are stunted, it means you also have 150 million adolescents that are stunted and 150 million adults that are stunted. So we understand how there could be such a big number of people that are not thriving. And we know there's almost 800 million people uh, in the world every day who are going to bed hungry or aren't sure where they're going to get their next meal from. So it really remains the world's biggest challenge, the world's biggest problem, and the biggest opportunity to affect change. Um, but within there, of course, there's been lots of things that have been tried and lots of myths around why they haven't worked or, or what could work. And so the other part of looking at the, just on the outputs, oh, sorry, on the input side, what's the problem, is to look at what's the best social return on investment. What's the best way that a, a donor like me or a government can get the best return on investment on their donation or on their social investment or their impact investment. And it turns out there's an organization uh, who think about this all day long and led by some of the world's leading economists, Nobel Prize winners called the Copenhagen Consensus. And they rank uh, the best ways for governments to spend their money to get um, uh, to solve the world's biggest challenges. Everything from you can imagine from uh, researching diseases, highway safety, um, HIV vaccines, uh, school campaigns, uh, hepatitis immunizations, I mean, everything you could imagine. And in 2012, what they ranked as the number one investment priority was bundled micronutrient interventions to fight hunger and improve education during the first 1,000 days of life. So just to caveat this discussion we're um, having and, and going to continue to dive into here, um, we're going to be talking about a very specific and maybe intervention is not the right word, but a very specific um, area within um, uh, the first thousand days um, and how you sort of go about it, ad addressing uh, addressing that um, through these sort of micronutrient delivery. But uh, the caveat is that this is a much broader, uh, complex issue um, than we're sort of, we're not hashing out all of those complexities here and that really this issue is 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 bigger um, than than what we're sort of talking about here Mel maybe can you just unpack for us a little bit about what are some of the complexities around addressing this first first thousand days beyond just sort of micronutrient delivery sure I mean you've uh, you've thrown a, a fun word uh, terminology in it there the the first one thousand days and I think we'll we'll unpack that window a lot more um, in our conversation but I think just to, to set the stage that um, malnutrition is, is really complex um, and it's something that you know it's, it's taken decades and to understand and we're still trying to understand what you know what are the root causes of malnutrition and it, I think today we're going to talk uh, really specifically about um, nutrients and, and the minerals that are required within that um, understanding of how to address poor nutrition but um, maybe to say that like for World Vision, certainly um, our scope of focus around effective ways to improve nutrition covers things like preventing illness, um, uh, making sure that there's access to water and toilets, and uh, making sure that there's health services available to treat things like uh, malaria and pneumonia. Um, 
and uh, you know, just simple things like making sure that as kids are playing, that they're in a hygienic environment, you know, that they're not picking up dirt and putting it in their mouth. So the, the, I think the factors that contribute to malnutrition are very complex and it requires um, uh, quite a, you know, a broad package of interventions to say, you know, we tick the box and being able to address effective ways uh, within that spectrum. But um, certainly, having a, a focus on some of the, the most important pieces within that, um, I think is what, what we're going to tackle today. So. so for all the nutrition experts who are listening here, as we sort of focus on this one specific aspect, uh, you'll know that we are mindful of a much broader, more complex um, backdrop. When we're, we're talking about that period from conception to the age of two, we've recognized over, you know, the last decade that that period is the most critical, one of the most critical periods for intervening um, from a nutrition perspective, because without receiving the right nutrients in that period, there's long-term consequences for both growth and cognitive development. So you've, you've talked about, um, you know, the, the physical growth, which we talked about, like the stunted growth, um, their inability to reach a growth potential. But I think what you've hinted at is much more um, significant than just them not being, uh, these children not being able to reach a, you know, a specific height marker. And that's, the 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 consequences related to poor um, cognitive development and educational performance and so these are the kids that we see that um, they miss more days of school because of frequent illness they um, have uh, you know challenges focusing they generally have worse school performance um, and as they move into adulthood uh, sorry adolescence and adulthood um, they have uh, lower earning potential um, and are at a higher risk of chronic disease later in life. And I think what, what really um, is, is sad, but it's a really important piece to recognize is that these, these adolescents who are entering um, as adolescents and going into adulthood as malnourished themselves are the exact same women and girls who give birth to malnourished babies. So essentially what we're creating is this cycle of malnutrition that's really hard to break because we have kids born being mal being malnourished, going into adolescence being malnourished, and then those moms continuing to be malnourished who then give birth to malnourished babies. So that um, intergenerational cycle of malnutrition is what is one of the hardest things I think to break when we look at how to, how to, to, to make an impact in the nutrition world. Thank you, Melanie. Yeah, so that's exactly it. If, if these these children end up spending four to five year less years in school. They make 50% less during their life. They get married younger. They have more children. And so we say, you know, malnourished girls give, give birth to malnourished children and so on and so forth. And, and you could see that if we don't intervene exactly in those first 1,000 days, it seems unlikely that we'll ever break the cycle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we know that stunting affects education, income, and health. And we know that thanks to a lot of great organizations, uh, childhood nutrition has improved a lot, particularly severe and acutely malnourished, less so in chronically malnourished communities because it's so much bigger. Um, but I was, as you look more into that, you say there's a lot of people doing really good work here. What seems to be the problem or the challenge? Uh, or as we would say in the business world, what's the unfulfilled need? And right around the same time as the, I was looking at that in, in 2016, uh, the Harvard School of Public Health came out with a study that was funded by Grand Challenges Canada talking about 
identifying the number, the leading causes of stunting. And they identified that actually the leading cause of stunting was poor growth in the womb. And so that was a huge revelation in terms of understanding that sometimes when we intervene at the, with children, it's already too late. That these children are already born disadvantaged. And that the fact that malnourished women or adolescent girls, we know over 50% of the time, pregnancy in the developing world or high burden countries is adolescent girls. Um, when they don't get the right nutrition, they have often have the lowest status in the household. They eat least, they eat last. When they don't get the right nutrition, the, the fetus doesn't get the right nutrition and the result affects the next generation and the generation after that. So these children are actually born disadvantaged and sadly irreversibly disadvantaged. And so obviously this study called out for a paradigm shift from interventions that focus solely on children and infants to ones that also reach mothers, families, and adolescent girls. And so that was kind of our aha moment in terms of uh, interventions and where I felt that me and like-minded individuals could get involved uh, to really affect change uh, and change some of the way that uh, aid was distributed and uh, how we were uh, getting communities involved uh, in changing um, uh, cultural practices that were really um, preventing us from moving ahead. So just to, and just to sort of cap that off or, or sort of push the, the, so the next um, step of consequences, I mean, when you think about then the cost to society of having generations of, of children being born, babies being born irreversibly, um, you know, uh, disadvantaged um, through, you know, reduced income opportunities, um, increased demand on the healthcare system, um, you know, uh, higher unemployment rates. I, I mean, you know, the cost of the medical system, early um, premature deaths, um, all sorts of lost productivity as a result of that. It's just, it's absolutely massive because it, 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 it's, it's over such a long period of time um, and it's, um, and it affects so many aspects of their life that I guess it's it, it it's not so hard to see why the Copenhagen consensus might have come forward with this as the most important uh, or impactful area to focus on. Yeah, I mean it affects everything. It affects their education, their earning power, uh, their chronic disease. I mean it's uh, uh, life expectancy, uh, and their and their once they're more functional members of society, of course, they pay back in taxes and other contributions. Right. So, you know, it depends which calculation you use, but it's a 30 to one or a hundred to one return on investment. Um, and the investment is really only the micronutrient provision, some complementary foods and some behavior change programs. The actual micronutrient intervention is maybe two cents a day um, for those thousand days. Um, and uh, the, the impact for a lifetime is massive. So, you know, the, the frustrating part for people like me is we know the cure, right? We've, we've easily identified and we know it works because there's been study upon study of micronu multi, uh, micronutrient interventions and how they improve uh, the health of children and, and pregnant and lactating women. So iodine, you know, for higher birth weights and vitamin A and uh, iron for, of course, anemia and zinc we know reduces maternal infections and of course folate to reduce um, 
uh, birth defects and, and uh, spinal cord uh, issues. So, you know, the, the other benefit beyond the child is, of course, the mother. There's still, sadly, uh, 800 women dying a day from complications in pregnancy and childbirth. I think 99% are in high burden countries. Uh, and so, of course, an anemic mother uh, who hemorrhages during pregnancy or during childbirth is is at greater risk of bleeding out. And, and so it, it protects the mother, protects the child. And of course, uh, even, even for adolescent girls that are not pregnant, uh, not being anemic has a huge impact on your daily lives in terms of your daily energy and your ability to, to um, contribute. Mm -hmm. so, so we know it's the world's biggest problem. We know it's the biggest social return on investment and we have the cure. So really all we need is smart action to affect change. And so, and just to the risk of restating the, hammering the point here, it's just delivering micronutrients during a particularly vital period uh, for, for moms. Correct, correct. And we've really tried to stay laser focused on that mission uh, and not drift into, all, you know, there's obviously many, many other things that are needed and, and there are lots of great agencies doing great work. And really, we, uh, we, those complementary support systems, uh, deworming, uh, you know, social programs, learnings uh, are hugely important. And that's why partners like World Vision, who are in 100 countries and have 37,000 people in those countries who understand the social context are hugely important. But Motherhood is really remaining focused on what we believe is the best the best return on investment and where we could do the most good because uh, we don't have obviously infinite resources to affect change. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit, let's talk specifically about how mother food goes about that. And then we can talk a little bit about, um, you know, why this is such a you know difficult area to, to, to address and, and then how world vision and mother food are working together. Do you want to just start right. though, Jeff with what specifically, how is mother food specifically addressing this? Thank you. So, you know, the, the challenge is really, now that we know, know the problem and we know the cure, the challenge is really uh, one of format, distribution, uh, local social context and cultural context, but as well, it's also cost. And when you're talking about food, one of the things that's really been lost is flavor. So the, the NGO community and the aid community have done an incredible job with severe and acutely malnourished communities, particularly young children, reducing mortality by, I would say, up to 90%, thanks to uh, mainly peanut-based rations uh, that have really been a modern-day miracle, uh, things like bumpy nuts. And so it seemed logical to take those same rations and to push them up from infants to pregnant and lactating women or general population and into the chronically malnourished community. But unfortunately, uh, food choices just don't work that way. And there's, of course, not an infinite amount of money to give everybody food rations amongst the 2 billion malnourished people who, need, who require interventions on a daily basis. Um, and the way that we've learned that the way that consumers at the bottom of the pyramid choose food is not dissimilar to the way you and I choose food. Um, where we go, how we think about it, what we consider to be good tasting is different. But consumers, uh, 
chronically malnourished consumers at the bottom of the pyramid have said they want the best food that they can afford. They don't want the cheapest food. And food rations that um, don't look good, they don't taste good, they don't smell good, uh, the packaging isn't attractive, and it carries a stigma with it when you go around eating those foods. There's, of course, hierarchies even within slums, as you well know, um, is not really how they're making selections. And we learned in studies by Doctors Without Borders and others that when you move these ready-to-use therapeutic foods up into the general population, the acceptability is as low as 20%. Um, and even though they know these things are healthy, they're not going to bring home food that their family doesn't want to eat. And pregnant and lactating women in particular, uh, sometimes thanks to nausea, are more selective about what they eat. So let me just so, uh, let me just interrupt you there for right. one second because I think this is an interesting point. I mean, it, it there especially to people who aren't from this space who haven't spent any time in these types of contexts, it might be easy to wonder. Well, wait a minute. So you have people who are you know arguably desperately in need of nourishment who are saying, well, you're getting picky about the taste, and and I think I mean you might have a couple ways to respond to this. I mean, one is that we're all human beings and yeah, taste matters uh, a lot aside from whatever the you know, other cultural um, issues and stigmas as you sort of, as you say. Um, but also, you know, it, the point you made earlier is that a lot of times it, they aren't, and you, you're using some technical terms here, which we can kind of tease out a little bit, but the, it isn't always the case that they're, that they are, uh, and I'll use a very untechnical term here, starving for, for macronutrients it's that they're not getting the proper micronutrients. So where their bellies potentially could be full, where they've had enough to satisfy the hunger pain, you know, you're trying to get them to consume micronutrients so, so, and, and to add that into their diet. So I think it's just interesting yeah. because I think, you know, you, you could wonder, so a listener could be sitting here going, wait a minute, they just can't, they, they don't like the taste. I mean, how picky can you get? <laughs> yeah, so I think that's a very important distinction between undernourished and malnourished. So. There are still, unfortunately, um, tens of millions of people that are undernourished and are what are called wasting, um, literally, you know, starving to death. And, and let's, you know, that's a, probably a few hundred million people. Um, however, there are two billion people that are chronically malnourished as opposed to undernourished that are not getting the right vitamins and minerals they need to thrive on, uh, on a daily basis. So if all you're eating is millet and water every day, uh, you might be uh, getting in the, your caloric needs, uh, but everything else that you need, particularly a child, are not being satisfied. Mm -hmm. And we all make flavor choices every single day, um, and not just what's healthy for us. If we, just, if we were all um, wise enough to make healthy choices, we'd eat kale three meals a day, and we wouldn't have an obesity problem in America. Right? There's more healthy choices available on the shelves than there ever were, and obesity keeps rising every year. So flavor and format and convenience have a huge impact on how people choose their food every day. And people at the bottom of the pyramid have limited choices, but they do have choices. And they're not going to bring home food that their family isn't going to eat. And they don't want to consume things that the, the texture or the format or the odor is unfamiliar or unpleasant to them. And so this has really been um, a missed opportunity, I believe, for the aid community who understandably are under tight budgets, and they're literally buying nutrition by the ton. Uh, these these uh, peanut-based, um, ready-to-use therapeutic foods are bought by the ton, and there's pages and pages of specifications on things that are crucially important 
like vitamins and minerals and aflatoxins and peanuts, but there isn't very much on what they should taste like uh, because they treat food interventions like any medical interventions and they're procured and purchased just like you would procure uh, a vaccine or immunization uh, because in the early days with severe malnutrition, it was a desperate medical intervention required to save lives. And so it kind of has remained in that um, system of buying health interventions where I don't think food should be treated that way, uh, especially not for chronically malnourished people who choose their food in a marketplace. And on the other side, we have the private sector who are coming out with things that taste great, that have fantastic marketing, that are very appealing and have no nutrition, right? So they're totally ignoring the nutrition aspect or almost totally ignoring the nutrition aspect and only focusing on what's attractive, well-priced and tastes great. And so people are getting addicted as we know to fat, salt and sugar. And so now there's this new reality uh, or a double burden as they describe it of families that have often in the same household a child that is obese and malnourished because they're only consuming sugar uh, and undernourished and malnourished often under the same roof. Uh, so if we don't get to these markets, um, other multinational food companies will get there and they will start, in fact, they have started suffering the same burden around obesity together with their malnourishment and undernourishment challenges. Yeah, uh, what's really, so that's really interesting. I mean, we're, as you say, we're already starting to see that and there's lots of contexts in which, you know, obesity in large parts of, you know, parts of sub-Saharan Africa is a problem more than uh, under undernourishment. But the other thing that's really interesting about that is the is just the challenge. So if one of the barriers to delivering micronutrients and getting them to the women, you know, who need them at the time that they need them is is taste and, and those preferences, um, the of course, the trick there is, taste is subjective, right? It's relative to, you know, certain communities and, and, and parts of the world and where you're located. So now you don't have a one size fits all generic delivery, you know, mechanism, a, a type of food that you can just give and that everybody's going to like, like a plumpy nut paste. Um, so I, then this is where mother food sort of comes in. Yeah. Exactly. So we realized early on that, this was really putting us in the food business for lack of a better term, even though it's a nonprofit. Um, and we recognize that taste is very local. Um, you know, there's, there's some areas that have homogeneous taste, but in India, we get uh, flavor profiles that change every couple of kilometers because every couple of kilometers could be a million people. Um, and so we understood very quickly uh, in, in our, from our focus groups and our taste tests around the world, that we really needed to work with local ingredients, local inputs, and local factories, um, not only to make sure to deliver things that they find great tasting, but also to stimulate local economies and livelihoods for female entrepreneurs, um, because uh, these mothers don't have food because they don't have money, and they don't have money because they don't have jobs, or they have low-paying jobs. Uh, so it really became this virtuous cycle where we had to strike a balance between the smart marketing and flavoring of the private sector bundled together with the smart nutrition of the nonprofit sector. Um, and so the obvious place to go from the learnings of Plumpy Nuts or even um, the sex successful market-based products sold by candy bar manufacturers here that 
a healthy bar seemed to be the best convenient method to bundle, bundle local grains together with micronutrients and deliver them at the right price point um, to get to adolescent girls and pregnant and lactating women. So we started with taste tests in Colombia and moved on to Ethiopia, Ghana, India, and Jordan and started making products together with local small kitchens and with large factories. And we started running acceptability tests. You know, the, 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 the aid communities use acceptability rather than product loyalty as their, as their buzzword. And we know that the acceptability of some of the therapeutic uh, food rations is as low as 20%. And we were getting you know, success as high as 100%, always consistently between 85% and 100%. And it's not because we did anything brilliant. It's just that we listened to the local women tell us what they wanted to eat. And so in Jordan, it's you know, a date paste bar. In India, it's uh, something called chickies, which is peanut. It's almost like a peanut brittle. In Ethiopia, it's it's a product that's based on kolo, which is a local roasted um, buckwheat mixture. In Ghana, millet is is uh, uh, you know a leading grain, and in Colombia, it's uh, you know corn and oats. So we use local inputs, which are easy to get and inexpensive. It's flavor profiles that they're already familiar with. How we how we like taste or don't like taste has much more to do with actual than just flavor profiles or sweetness or, or it has a lot to do with what we grew up with and associations. And that goes down to textures as well. So, you know, uh, the bars from uh, Africa, I find particularly gritty, um, but the people there say that, you know, for them, that's the way they've eaten products. And some of the uh, taste experts tell us that that signals that food is fresher. Um, in the minds of those consumers. So getting really getting down into the more granular understanding of what people are gonna to wanna to, like to eat and what a pregnant and lactating woman is willing to eat every single day through her pregnancy and through lactation, which we hope lasts you know, at least six months and hopefully two years uh, is really how we're, we're winning hearts and minds. Um, and the second part to it is really working with uh, women to make these bars and sell them into the community. So um, the last thing anybody needs is another white Westerner coming to tell them how they should be eating or what they should be doing. Uh, and it's much better uh, accepted, uh, these recommendations for health and food choices when it's done peer to peer, study after study have shown that. Um, and so sometimes it's a tribal leader Sometimes it's the head of a woman's co-op, as it is with the co coffee cooperatives we work with in Colombia. Uh, sometimes it's a maternal aunt. Uh, you know, there's sometimes it's a nurse, a doula, a, a midwife, um, and all different influencers uh, that are the right, understand the right cultural context to introduce new products uh, with uh, familiar flavors into the community. And that's, you know, another incredibly huge aspect to consider uh, when introducing new flavors and formats into these communities. And um, um, I, I'm sure Melanie can talk a little bit more about adolescent girls and, and cultural context than I can. So maybe I'll turn it over to her. <clears throat> uh, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, it's, uh, you've certainly painted the, a lot of the challenges that we face in the development side. And I think um, I appreciate where you've 
you've said like you guys have chosen to be laser focused, um, something that as an NGO, it, it, we obviously are not. Um, and I think that also speaks for us to the complexity of malnutrition. I think um, when we start to understand I'll, I'll come to the social context of that, but understanding how we work within malnutrition from an NGO perspective, trying to target some of those um, underlying causes that you talk to around um, deworming and, you know, making sure hygiene is in place and, and some of the health services. Um, and that's certainly something that World Vision has prioritized um, with a focus on those types of interventions that are most important within the first thousand days. But I think in addition to that um, when we when we do move into that laser focus, looking at how do we ensure that micronutrients are reaching um, that that target group, and if we talk about pregnant women, and um, I, I do, I would like to broaden that to consider the adolescent girls, because as as you've talked about, we have so many adolescent girls in this context entering uh, their reproductive life cycle so early. Um, you know, I was looking at some of the numbers around, you know, there's over 21 million girls aged 15 to 19 years old that are giving birth every year. Um, and when we understand within the context that we're operating in, um, we know that these girls are mostly already um, suffering from malnutrition. Um, they, you've talked to the fact that the, the cause of this malnutrition is, is intergenerational, but also some of those just discriminatory feeding practices uh, where they're eating last in the house and um, you know, they're fed the worst quality of the food. So they're entering, uh, they're entering pregnancy from a malnourished state. Um, the, the other challenge that within this is that oh, there's a lot of social understanding that in many cases, um, women are not, coming forward to, uh, to acknowledge that they're pregnant until they're three or four months uh, pregnant already. And so we've had, not only are they starting out uh, malnourished, even before they get pregnant, we have three or four, sometimes longer, up to six months, where they're not receiving the critical micronutrients they need for the baby that's developing in their womb. And in that case, it's, it's too late. It's, it, in, in, you know, in my opinion, it's, it's, uh, we've, we've lost you know, our opportunity at that point. So looking at ways for us to be able to uh, break that cycle of malnutrition even before conception is, is a great opportunity. I think um, you're, you're painting a picture where there is some opportunity that through food-based solutions, we can do that because we're not looking at pills and powders that have to be prescribed um, to specific individuals. And um, I know we've, we've talked a lot around the challenges, the social context um, in trying to get um, uh, an increased uptake around pills and powders the the format um i mean there any pregnant woman in canada i'm sure could even talk to the challenges around taking iron pills during pregnancy um it, it's a com it's it's hard it's it, i know so many of my friends who you know they struggled with really severe side effects and so in a context um that we're working in in these developing countries where women are not counseled to even understand the side effects of iron pills um, or to help um overcome some of the challenges with taking those, that format of micronutrients. Um, yet alone, these, the social cultural stigma um, with taking a pill. And I, I, we can, you know, I, we can go into all numerous um, contextual um, cultural factors that build on things like the conception, the misconception that pills are associated with ster sterilization. And so um, we have factors where women don't want to consume the pills because of the side effects. We have um, factors where the communities don't want them to consume the pills because, you know, they think that somebody is 
forcing, um, you know, family planning on them without consent. Um, there's, you know, there's just, you know, there's, there's supply challenge issues. Uh, there's just numerous issues around making sure that that, de that delivery through pills and powders is as effective as it's intended to be. Um, yeah, so. So, I mean, this whole conversation just makes me really, I mean, it's a, it's a serious and uh, heartbreaking subject, but it makes me really happy to be surfacing these types of issues. I mean, one of the things that Jeff, I just loved about Mother Food, and, and just by way of background, um, we first came across Mother Food at Origin Capital through our Gender Impact Fund as we were doing, you know, research and due diligence on potential investments and seeing the work that you guys are doing in this space. It's just amazing uh, for a variety of reasons. It just so overlaps and aligns with uh, Origin Capital and World Vision's approach to this, which is, you know, understanding uh, and getting very, very hyper-local. And so, like, getting into communities, working in communities, uh, and understanding the challenges and, and, like, listening to communities. So this approach where, you know, the white Westerners coming in to save the day and we have all the answers, and, and by the way, happens you know, arguably the impact investment space and social finance space is even more guilty of because now you have private sector entering who has all of the answers to all of the questions, right? Because they're just superior <laughs> and that's just not the case. And so having, you know, people like yourself who are coming from the private sector and understanding, hey, like the people we're trying to help, maybe they know something or two about like what they need and how to, how we can help. Why don't we ask them? <laughs> like it's just such a simple concept that so few often stop to do because it slows you down and because you actually have to ask those questions then be willing to respond to it. And so asking people what they like in terms of taste seems like a really obvious thing to do, but you know, isn't often done. Um, so I just, I, so I love a ringing up Mel, like what are those challenges? Why is this more difficult than it seems from the outside? You say, well, why don't we just get them the micronutrients they need and that's problem solved. Just oh, right. Right. And so like, oh, right because here's why and all those things is like inevitably whenever I've encountered an issue where I've done that type of lazy like oh why don't they just do this once you dig into it and you actually understand the context you're like oh right and then there's like 18 reasons why they don't just do that and it's not that simple so I love that we're surfacing some of these issues and that mother food is addressing those challenges by involving communities and understanding what their needs are thank you so much and and so I think that you know, you hit it on the nail on the head is that while they, while their way of solving these problems or addressing these discussions around childbirth or pregnancy are not the same as ours, there are systems in place. And so if you can work within those existing systems or existing flavors or existing ingredients and with existing influencers, uh, you, you know, you get to surf along that wave of support. There's, there's really, I think, our desire that happens too often, and I know we've spoken about this before, for people to come in with a silver bullet, a technology that's gonna change everything and change the way everybody does things. Um, and I think that that's tempting, while being very tempting, I think it's also a little bit naive uh, to think that some technological innovation is gonna change cultural practices that have formed over you know, generations and generations. So we're better off starting and learning a little bit about those systems and how we can work within those systems. And, and taking a pill might seem very simple or sprinkling powder, micronutrient powders on our food might seem like a simple intervention to us. Um, but if you've never taken a pill before or you've never eaten peanut butter before, 
um, and you have a lot of traditional beliefs and, and fears of outsiders, that might be a big, a big ask. Yeah, or you uh, lived so, in a community where your government has practiced mass sterilization and you're rightly skeptical <laughs> of right. receiving some unknown pill from some unknown organization or entity. I mean, it's like, anyway, uh, it's, uh, uh, the other thing I want to really commend you for, and, and I think is because it's addressing some of the, I think the problematic aspects of, of impact investing, and I'm a big supporter of the space, I operate in the space, but I'm also love to, you know, actually address um, its shortcomings and challenges is, you know, the, the, the positive interpretation or the charitable interpretation of impact investing is great. Look, it's all these people who want to do good and they, you know, want to use their investments to do good. The, the other way to flip that around is, oh, look, so now even when wealthy people do good, they need to make a profit off of it um, and extract the value that's to be had from it to the extent you can create some sort of profit from doing good. They, they want to take part in that too and extract that profit as well off the backs of, you know, people who were trying to benefit. And I, I think the truth is, you know, can be somewhere on that spectrum, depending on the, <laughs> the, um, the exact uh, impact investment we're talking about, how we're deploying and using capital. But what I love about this model is addressing uh, gender, uh, you know, all sorts of issues, but gender equality as a broad SDG. So increasing the distribution by allowing women to sell the bars in their community. So you improve the distribution of that and the uptake of the, of the bars, but also allow women to, to benefit off of the economic value that's being created rather than to extract that to, to, to Western societies. And so I love that that's part of this model. It seems to me, you know, even though the, the primary I guess impact is intended to be the maternal newborn child health in that first thousand days, the micronutrients. There's this very other real big impact on economic development and gender equality. Yeah, I think that that's a very good point you made and, and, and hugely important is that, so you're right, impact investing um, makes a lot of promises to a lot of people in terms of what it's going to do for all the social problems, including the environment, and also people are going to make a profit along the way. Well, running businesses is hard and um, international development is hard. Put the two together and add in all the stakeholders involved, it's, it's a really big challenge. And so, you know, we've really decided that um, if there is any profit, and we don't really use the word profit, we say surplus, uh, the surplus remains uh, with the women that need it in the communities. And we don't think that helping them develop a profitable business as entrepreneurs um, undermines uh, our core objective, which is to improve uh, livelihoods for women. And we know that when you get more money into the hands of women, the nutritional status of the entire home improves uh, because women know how to spend money on their families better than men do, uh, studies have shown. So I think that certainly uh, capitalism in our own home. Uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> that is definitely true. <laughs> it holds. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, I think that it's, it's unfair to say that capitalism is the solution um, and that capitalism isn't sometimes the problem. And this could be a much lengthier discussion, of course, hmm. uh, but there is places within um, the social sector where um, developing an entrepreneurial model uh, can help relieve uh, a lot of the burden of some of the things we're already talking about. And so, as we said before, if they don't have money because they don't have jobs, um, just building a donor-based model 
uh, that isn't a sustainable option. The other thing is that there's 2 billion people that aren't getting the right nutrition. Uh, the donor community can't, just can't afford to cover that. So unless we build it into a market-based system, unless we make their food choices go towards um, healthy products rather than some of the multinational choices, the multinational food company choices, unless we really break that cycle and make it part of the, the market-based economy, uh, we just won't really make enough of a dent uh, to affect this problem. And it's, it's still the world's, as I said, the world's biggest problem. There's still 25,000 children under the age of five dying every single day from preventable causes. Um, there's still 800 women dying every day from complications in childbirth and pregnancy. So uh, it, it's still, and once you know that we have the cure and that these problems continue to exist, you know, it, you real, really feel a sense of urgency to get out there and affect change. And, and fortunately, the, you know, the programs that we've developed are working, um, uh, much to our delight. Uh, but when you, when you have a solution that works uh, and you see the size of the problem, you feel a lot of um, motivation to do more. And so we're looking for great partners like World Vision, who have such a huge reach and really understand the communities that we want to go into, which, as we discussed, is hugely important. That's why partners like that are hugely important to us. Uh, to to really allow us to punch well above our weight. Yeah, can you talk a, a, bit, a little bit, Mel or, or Jeff, about the some of the just early ways that World Vision and, and Mother Food are where there's sort of overlap and complementarity and and how we can sort of work together? <clears throat> sure, I can I can say a few things. Um, I think Jeff has called out the the social context and the importance of understanding um, the communities we work in. And certainly, World Vision's long term presence in the communities is an asset in this in that uh, in that regard. The I think um, I think that's one of the where I see the the best overlap for us is in um, World Vision's ability to work within the influencers and within the community structures for behavior change. And we have decades of experience in in working with influencers like religious leaders, like grandmas, um, within women's groups themselves to help um, drive behavior change towards improved nutrition, whether that's helping them to understand the importance of micronutrients, um, or you know, even trying to dispel some of those misconceptions around the pills, which you know, it's we've already talked about how challenging that can be. But where we have already set up these um, these social platforms for change, and where you know we're we're affecting change across multiple um, groups in that. I think working with Mother Food to refine that message is, is a really important opportunity. And I think just building out one other thing I'll say, building out that spectrum is that uh, World Vision has tons of programming across the spectrum that's looking at, um, you know, empowering and um, training and equipping uh, agricultural producers and in, in this model, really prioritizing working with women producers, which we can pull into this work with mother food where we're locally sourcing those ingredients. And so we're, we're creating even more of a ripple effect in terms of the opportunity, the economic opportunity for those women, which Jeff has already talked about, uh, directly provides an impact on the whole household nutrition. Um, and then you have this great uh, economic opportunity that overlaps with some of the programs that World Vision already supports, such as um, savings and loans groups for women where, where they're, you know, learning about, um, you know, finances and spending and budgeting and stuff like that, um, and giving them uh, a really neat product that meets uh, a social need, a, a 
an acute need in their community. Um, so they're driving change from within as well. I think it's, it's really the neat uh, position for us to be in. That's awesome. Yeah, so I think uh, Melanie said it well, and, and you know, the last thing um, a place like Ghana needs is another NGO to show up and put boots on the ground and try and uh, stake their own claim. So, you know, knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at is, is critical in terms of being in creating efficiencies. Um, and so we've really focused on, on product uh, and, and understanding that that context uh, and how we can um, win hearts and minds in the markets and how we can help women start their own businesses. Beyond that, understanding social context in all these communities is hugely complex and takes, takes years and years and years. And, and uh, World Vision has obviously been in the community long enough to do that. And even here, when we're just started recently talking to indigenous communities, um, that's, there's a whole learning there around um, how to speak to those communities properly and not to go in presumptuous and try and impose what you think is the right solution uh, in, in places where, um, where, where they need help and have their own way of dealing with issues. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, that, that, that's exactly, it's like sort of leading with, with, with questions rather than leading with the answers. Um, and if you're, if you're able to, if you have a model that allows you to adapt and respond to those answers, then you can ask the questions. It's when you've already formulated the response and you know what it is and, and, and then you've sort of made it rigid that you, you can't start with questions because you already know the answer, uh, which, you know, I've got air quotes around know the answer. Um, so, yeah. So, so Jeff, that is something that you guys are looking at and talking to right now is whether there's application for this. And I, it sounds like there is given again, your model is a, sort of leading with communities, but um, application in an indigenous context in Canada? Yeah, it's still very early days now. And um, like, I, like we just stated, we're doing a lot of learning. Uh, and it's very different kind of challenge than, than uh, obviously the challenges in, in high burden countries. Uh, but uh, anywhere where we think that the food systems are failing uh, in terms of either the quality of the food um, or the, the variety of foods, uh, I think there's an application. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's not surprising that we have such high acceptability and why our products are, are being well received because the women design them themselves and they're selling the products that they design themselves. Uh, the other thing that gets interesting is, of course, in increasing the value of the agricultural food chain. So w w as much as we can, we'll work with local farmers who were before just selling commodities. But if they can transform these commodities into products, um, then it obviously increases the value of their, um, of their crop and, and helps improve the livelihoods of sustenance farmers, who, as you know, are uh, uh, a big economic model in, in in the uh, in high burden countries and the new reality that they're discussing now which is quite concerning is that rather than consuming their healthier crops they're selling the crops and using that money to go and buy uh, you know uh, high sugar snacks in the in the markets uh, which is something that's leading to again increased malnutrition yeah and that's that's certainly not a new problem that i mean that problem of not consuming what they're producing is has been something that Real Vision has been challenged with for for a while uh, in terms of trying to promote behavior change around, you know, their their own diet choices. Um, 
so I think, like you said, in terms of giving them another value add for their, their produce is, um, is further pushing the needle on that, which is great. And this is a, probably an oversimplification, but it always stood out to me very early in my sort of learning journey around challenges in, in nutrition in the space. Mel telling me about, you know, and there's, there's all sorts of different contexts and, and rationales, but in certain contexts where you have somebody trading away healthy crops or selling healthy crops and then consuming things like, you know, white fluffy white bread. Well, because Western societies eat white bread and so they're healthy. So this must be healthy for you. And just like taking for granted the very basics of nutrition we learn in school, which is, you know, you don't have to be an expert nutritionist to understand, you know, proteins and carbs and fats and my, you know, various micronutrients or just understanding a diverse diet is important is, you know, you can't yeah. take it for granted in, in a lot of contexts in the world with that education not provided. Yeah, but I think you've hit on a good point there that that um, foods that they buy in the market, packaged foods in particular, in high burden countries are aspirational. So uh, my wife is Colombian and the leading chocolate bar there is called Jet and it has a picture of a private jet on the on the package. Mm. Uh, and in, in Ghana, the leading bar is called Burger and Burger means somebody who's traveled abroad. Mm. And, you know, say what you will about Coca-Cola, but it tastes exactly the same to the richest person in the world and the poorest person in the world. Yeah. So these are the same products that the wealthy and the poor. So the this strategy that you see multinational comes come up with of cheaper versions of their Western products as being the right solution in the developing worlds has has failed for for obvious reasons. And so the and and also the reason why uh, consumers don't want to walk around with food rations. Again, it's they think these brands, like we think about brands, are a reflection of who they are and who they want to be. And so the product needs to be aspirational, both in terms of how it reflects on them, but also in terms of the nutrition they want to have. And, and that messaging is, getting that messaging right is critically important um, within communities and making sure they don't make the same bad choices we've been making here for decades that have led to our obesity crisis. And I think I just want to, again, circle back to the opportunities that the younger generation is, is uh, providing. I think we're we're seeing some, at least my, my experience, I'm seeing some really amazing things coming out of the work we're, we're doing with adolescents in Ethiopia, where providing them with some of that education around, like you said, Dave, that we take for granted around healthy diets and basic understanding of uh, nutrients and what your body needs, and the way that they're transforming food choices within their community, and they're going out to advocate within their own families, they're arguing for, um, you know, better choices in their households and ensuring that it's equal between, you know, boys and girls, they're starting to drive change themselves. Um, and I think where we can um, ride that wave to create, uh, to offer nutritious products, they, they get it, right? Like they're, they understand the importance of it. And if we're creating opportunities for them to, um, to act on it, I think it just is equipping them with more tools in their kit to, to drive change in their community. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and we even see it here. I mean, the, the youth that I speak to now are so much more knowledgeable when it comes to healthy eating than I was when a teenager or a student. I know I treated my body like a garbage can, and, uh, but they know right early on. And, uh, and, you know, I think micronutrient education is, is also important to get past this, this fixation on macronutrients. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but it's, it's a healthy, new way of looking at food and, and uh, I, we, it has to make its way to the developing world. 
Well, that's great. Uh, well, with that, let's, uh, we'll leave it there. I won't take up more of your time, but Jeff, we really appreciate you making it on to the podcast and Mel, thanks for joining and, and giving the, the world vision nutrition perspective. And, uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to journey with you, you guys and, uh, deliver more impact and, and see where you're, uh, where it goes from here. Thanks so much. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks Jeff.